With the incapacity of Henry VI in the autumn of 1453, the King's Council had a decision to make, and it was not one they relished very much. They were well aware that whatever they decided might well have significant political fallout for many years to come. When we consider their task, it's easy to understand their reluctance to act. They had to choose a regent or protector of the realm to rule in the king's stead for as long as Henry VI remained ill or until his newly born son, Prince Edward, came of age, so possibly as long as 14 or 15 years. Such a man would need to be in it, therefore, for the long haul, would need to have a commitment to government. What's more, whoever was chosen was unlikely to be universally popular, for as protector he would be using the power of a king, but without the protection of being an anointed king. So who were the potential candidates for this tempting but ultimately poisoned chalice? Well, the obvious one was Edmund Beaufort, Duke of Somerset, since he was already acting as the leading minister of the crown. But there were reservations within the council about Somerset's ability to rule wisely. And since the flare-up between the Devils and the Percys, some, notably the powerful Devil Earls of Warwick and Salisbury, would not countenance Somerset in the role of protector. Another possibility was Queen Margaret, who had gradually become more directly involved in politics since 1450. She certainly saw herself as an ideal candidate, since in her home of Anjou it was not so very strange for a woman to take on such a role for an absent husband or a young son. Many lords were unconvinced, however, because her hostility to the Duke of York and her close ties to Somerset suggested that her rule would be partisan. There was a little distaste also for her strong personality, which some noblemen found difficult to accept in a world dominated by men. An outside possibility was Henry Holland, Duke of Exeter. Like Somerset, Holland was a relative of the king, descended from John of Gaunt's first wife, Blanche. He harboured the somewhat optimistic notion that he might be declared protector, but though a duke, he was a far less suitable candidate than either York or Somerset, as his later antics would show. So, the council was left with one of the above, or York himself. The latter, embittered, and chastened by his experiences in the past three years, must have thought his chances of power were gone. Yet the devil's need for action to be taken against their northern rivals, the Percys, played a key part in York's return to favour. Already linked by family ties, for York's wife Cecily was sister to the Earl of Salisbury, they made an alliance. The Devils would help York to be appointed protector, and in return, he would deliver strong action against the Percys. Though the support of the Neville Lords was vital, they were by no means the only members of the council who thought York was the right man for the task. We should not underestimate York's qualifications for the post. 
Despite his defeats, he was still England's leading peer, and he was accustomed to leadership, to military command, and to administration. After his lavish propaganda campaign calling for good government, he would be expected to deliver that which he had demanded from the king. After all, he was not being made king and never would be, assuming Prince Edward survived to manhood. As protector, he would simply be acknowledged as first among equals, a safe pair of hands. Nevertheless, a vote for York was inevitably a vote against Somerset and the Queen. Again, it's easy to see why the council dragged their feet. As the year drew to a close, preparations were made for a Parliament to meet in February 1454, where York, usually considered popular with the Commons, would expect to have the upper hand. If anyone was uncertain what his ascendancy would mean, all doubt was removed before Christmas, when York raised once more his charges against Somerset for his incompetence and failure in the French War. As a consequence, the Duke was sent to the Tower, though he might have been safer there than anywhere else. Now, if you think back to our little lesson about patronage at the start of all this, you could see that if York is appointed protector, then his supporters stand to gain a great deal, since he will be able to act with the power of the king. By comparison, those who have backed King Henry's noble favourite, the Duke of Somerset, stand to lose out heavily. With Somerset imprisoned, the Queen assumed control of what historians sometimes refer to from convenience rather than accuracy, as the court party. Not that political parties existed at that time at all. To the Queen, York still presented a threat to her extremely young son. She might have a male heir, but as she saw it, he was very vulnerable. As Parliament gathered in London in late February and early March 1454, the atmosphere was poisonous with supporters of both factions flooding into the city. Yet many others, including many lords, stayed away, reckoning it was wise to wait and see what happened from a safe distance. The number of absentees might be judged from the fact that York fined peers for not attending, the only time that has ever happened. York had been given the authority to open Parliament, but he was not yet protector. In the early days of the session, both sides had their victories, and there was an uneasy lull, a stalemate of sorts. The council were as reluctant in March 1454 to appoint a protector as they had been in October 1453, and they still hoped and prayed for the king's recovery. Matters were given a new impetus, however, by the death of the Chancellor Cardinal Kemp. Though the council had muddled through up to now, appointing one of the key officers of state was quite beyond their powers. Thus, on March the 25th, a dozen lords were sent to make one last attempt to communicate with the king. Although they tried everything and spent hours with him, they could get no sign or reaction of any sort from Henry. 
At this pivotal moment in the politics of the period, the council were on their own. The king's silence left them no choice. Whatever the consequences, they would have to act. So York was appointed protector, with a responsibility clearly stated for dealing with the king's enemies both at home and abroad. Well, it did not take too much imagination to work out who the king's enemies at home might turn out to be. To misquote Betty Davis, fasten your seatbelt, it's going to be a bumpy ride. Days after his elevation to the protectorate, York appointed his brother-in-law and chief ally, Richard Neville, Earl of Salisbury, to the vacant and key post of Chancellor. Nor was it long before the Duke of York made good his promise to the Nevilles and took action against the Percys. He was in any case keen to demonstrate how strong central government could ensure that law and order prevailed, by sharp contrast with what he regarded as Somerset's misrule in the previous years. The head of the Percy family, Henry, Earl of Northumberland, had remained aloof from the affairs of government for many years, preferring instead to consolidate his northern affinity. His second son, the antagonistic Lord Egremont, showed no such reluctance to exert the family's influence. Quite early in 1454, Egremont had made an alliance with Henry Holland, Duke of Exeter. Holland, a relative of the king, had ambitions that were not matched either by his abilities or his resources. Holland and Egremont were determined to make mischief in the north, and for a few days in May 1454 they controlled the city of York. Richard Duke of York rushed north, perhaps a little too eagerly. Holland and Egremont escaped, and then York found himself trapped in the city whilst the troublesome pair created havoc in the area outside it. Eventually, the protector brought up sufficient men and the two ne'er-do-wells fled. Though Holland took sanctuary in Westminster Abbey, York had him dragged out and imprisoned, an interesting precedent for what happens later. Meanwhile, despite York's intervention, Egremont remained at large in the north, and so late in the autumn of 1454, the Nevilles took matters into their own hands. At a skirmish near Stamford Bridge, Egremont was captured and fined so heavily he ended up in Newgate Jail for debt. So, by the end of 1454, we no longer have a nobility united behind the king with the exception of Richard Duke of York. What we now have for the first time in our story, is two rival groups amongst the nobility. Several of the key players on one side, Somerset, Holland and Egremont, might be locked up, but they are still hanging in there. So we have peace between the factions, but on York's terms. What is the difference then, you might ask, between the situation at the end of 1454 and that of 1452? Surely the only difference is that in 1454, York, rather than Somerset, was on top. But no, there is a much more important difference. In 1452, 
York had few allies and none with any genuine clout. But by 1454, he has some very powerful allies who now have a vested interest in his ascendancy. You might wonder what would happen if that ascendancy was suddenly taken away. Well, wonder no longer, because in December 1454, Henry VI's unerring sense of tragic timing meant that his sudden recovery enabled him to snatch chaos from the jaws of stability. This was surely a Christmas present the nation could have done without. <laughs>